The title of this evening's talk is Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of Not-Self. And beginning with something that was sent to me by a teaching colleague uh, that came from one of her students. What are you, my young Shen shouts gleefully, shouts gleefully at me several times a day over the past year. In his world, being is fluid. He's now a cheetah, now a crocodile, now a spaceman, now an earthworm. At the zoo, he tries on each new animal as we move from one exhibit to the next. Initially, I tried to play along. I'm a butterfly. He'd look at me critically. No, you're mama. My responses became mundane. I'm your mom. I'm a woman named Sally. I'm tired. I'm trying to put your shoes on. He was entirely neutral to any response. For a time, I was profoundly annoyed with the question, internally wincing at each repetition. Leaning in, I came to understand this not as an irritation with my son, but with the effort it takes to constantly try to figure myself out. Eventually, I dropped the effort. The question became an invitation to wake up, my mindfulness bell, a tiny Buddha master shouting my own personal koan at me. What are you? Exactly. The question resonates in the open silence of awareness. Answers still pop up, both mundane and philosophical in turns. I'm a river of being. I'm annoyed. I'm an, I am adoring. I am thoughts, feelings, and sensations. The flow of life, life passing right through the open door of my mind. Rumi says, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes at an unex, as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Which quirk of your daily life, experienced perhaps as an irritation, an effort, a task, a sensation, a recurring question, might be your mindfulness bell in disguise? Over a period of years, during my childhood, and on through adolescence and into the teen years, I had a recurring dream many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back, smaller and smaller. Myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror, endlessly. At times I was amazed, fascinated, and intrigued. And if if I thought about it very much, I would feel quite perplexed. But mostly I was really just quite interested. Interested enough that in fact it's the only dream that I clearly remember experiencing from my early years. 
this dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life, beginning when, at the age of 16, I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write in high school on religions other than Judeo-Christian. And right then, I had the very distinct feeling of touching into a deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking at myself in the mirror, at myself looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. This evening we'll explore the not-self nature of it all. The reality that, for many people, seems the most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though it might be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of not-self may often be fraught with a subtle or maybe a more overt fear. In its essence, this truth is so basic, so simple, that with even a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the veil of concept, of an idea, of belief that separates us from the reality of not-self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, him, her, it within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined context of the possible future or the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung-to and cherished self-identities, to relinquish the attachment to all of our clung-to and cherished hopes and fears and beliefs. It's important to recognize that in relinquishing our attachments, we're not asked to throw ourselves out. That's not what it is. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as ourself because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to just simply recognize that everything we think of as ourself, everything we believe to be ourself, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for a moment. What we call our self, on one level, is a subtle and yet clearly discernible active phenomena or process that we can sense, feel, see, and know directly through our practice. One aspect of this that's readily available to know experientially is the body process 
uh, as the body, as the process of the body being made up of many elements, which I mentioned briefly uh, a few Dharma talks ago. And I'll repeat just a little bit with the earth element, its characteristics experientially of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The water element with its characteristics experientially as flowing and cohesion. And the fire elements with its experiential characteristics of heat and coldness. And the air or the wind element with its experiential characteristics of supporting and pushing. With each and all of these elements being in constant flux in and of themselves and in relationship to each other. Our so-called self as our body or my body is in reality in constant flux. It's elemental nature in constant flux. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. So in truth, there's really nothing to attach to, nothing to cling to. And as you may know, at least to some degree, essentially all of the Buddha's teachings and all of the practices lead to this. The essential aim of the teachings and practices is to look in the mirror at ourself and look with such sincerity, humility, and willingness that we begin to see our self more accurately. We begin to see through our self by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're attached without all the layers of meaning we invest things with when we're identified with them. It's actually very simple. Maybe not so easy, but really uh, quite simple. We're sitting here in retreat. We're at home, at work, at our desk. We're at home relaxing on the couch. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness and lightness is just heaviness and lightness. Red or yellow is just red and yellow. The rising and the falling movement of the breath in the abdominal area is merely rising and falling. Memory is just memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these things, all of these occurrences are merely, are just themselves. And as the great uh, meditation master and teacher Ajahn Chah said, these, there are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person, he said. 
in the realm of conditional experience, in the realm of conditional existence. There's no real or no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, we could say that there's no real sustaining suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. The Chinese sage Nan Shin said, by not quite accepting because they do not please us things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha, in teaching his student Megiya, said, Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for the dispelling of the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. We experience this and that, everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only so much? Can we look into the mirror of ourself without claiming ownership and without investing in interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we sense and see? So, for instance, we think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my joy, my fear, my friends, my house, etc. This is some of how we create self again and again. This is how we become. This is how we no self, how we perpetuate continuing to become. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's the understanding that they are not self is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Myself, looking at myself in the mirror. Seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change the knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there is a self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will come undone. With this erroneous sense of things, when this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation, 
to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena, without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention. It's only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what is being observed, what is being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling, merely heat, merely an ache in the chest, or a tingling moving through the body, merely a thought arising and passing. No duality, as it's sometimes called. Not two. Just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, bodily sensations, and other sensor experiences, as well as feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal processes, can the power of a deeply rooted egocentric thought process, habits, and self-centered inclinations be loosened, reduced, relinquished, and then finally eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but through the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self, that we come to know not-self. And then for just a moment or two, and eventually, finally, it's not all about me. And the painful contraction that accompanies me, accompanies mine, that's based in the fear of losing something, for a moment, there's nothing. For a moment, there's no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart the mind is free. And from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. It's a heavy load, a burden, to carry our self around. The body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all of the hopes, all of the fears. We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around all the things of life in the form of thoughts, feelings, various opinions, perceptions and beliefs, (coughs) believing that they're mine, they're me, myself. There's a kind of sting that we feel in hauling around all the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership, a sense of identification. The Buddha offered a metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake. 
But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you. It hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life happens. We make use of things in the world as is appropriate. We keep looking and seeing. We keep living life. And in fact, living life much more freshly and much more fully in the immediacy of here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher in our life here on retreat and in our life outside of a retreat setting. And a poem from the Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield. She calls this, Only when I am quiet and do not speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy, the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking, the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking, a quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not the false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I hear the sigh of happiness that each object gives off if I glimpse for even an instant the actual instant. As if they believed it possible, I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice as we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. So, for instance, do I reside in the intestines or in the rumbling sensations therein? Am I in the thigh bone or the skin or the head hair or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath at the nostrils, is that me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space? Or the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta 
is offered to a dear friend. Well, we might think, okay, I'm not the foot, not the sensation of the in-breath, but certainly my mind, certainly my conscious mind is me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? I think it's fair to say that one of the things that most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. But the truth is that the very nature of mind itself is that it is unformed, unborn. So just for a moment right now, close your eyes and look into your own mind, your own heart. Maybe for a moment you sense and see its empty nature. Like experiencing zero, as one of my Buddhist teachers, Pawak Sayadaw, says. In the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan, he says, when you look at zero, You see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. And so the Buddha, coming directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary way of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomenon. It too arises and passes away moment by moment like every other conditioned phenomena. It too is dependent on contact with some object through one of the six sense doors. No matter how gross or how subtle that object may be. It too is dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It too is dependent on the mental unpleasant feelings, on the mental labels, excuse me. It too is dependent on the mental labels and the the constructs and the clinging that arises in the conscious mind through contact through one of the six sense doors. To make this very clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six doors of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind or mind phenomena consciousness. There are two short suttas from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya, in the form of conversations between the Buddha 
and one of his students. And the first is between the Buddha and a deva. A deva, some of you may know what a deva is and some may not. So a deva in the Buddhist teachings and in Buddhist understanding is a being that's uh, quite pure, has quite a purified mind and heart, uh, but has uh, and has a lot of insight, a lot of understanding, but is not uh, yet totally free from suffering. So this is a conversation between one of those beings and the Buddha. <clears throat> and the deva asks the Buddha, what produces a person? And goes on with more questions. What does he or she have that runs around? What enters upon samsara? What is his or her greatest fear? What is she or he not yet freed from? What determines his or her destiny? So the Buddha responds to all these questions put forth by the deva. Craving is what produces a person. His or her mind is what runs around. A being enters upon samsara. Suffering is his or her greatest fear. She or he is not freed from suffering. Karma or kama determines his or her destiny. And in the second short sutta, another short conversation, this one is between the Buddha and his chief disciple, um, Venerable Ananda. And Venerable Ananda says to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, it is said empty is the world. Empty is the world. In what way is it said empty is the world? And the Buddha's response It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs to self? The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. I, consciousness, I, contact. And then he goes on like this through each of the sense door consciousnesses in the, sa- in the same way, ending with mind consciousness. And whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, meaning neutral, that too is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said, empty is the world. And from the perspective of an 8th century Chinese sage, we have another Dhamma mirror, we could say. And this is the uh, 8th century Chinese sage's words. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there is really no separate self, no separate 
personality. No absolute death and no absolute life. And a wonderfully uh, simple poem uh, by the contemporary Buddhist poet Jim Harrison, who died uh, not so long ago. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full, sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer two brief guided meditations beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. And if an image doesn't come easily for you, don't struggle with it. Simply allow a felt sense to permeate uh, in your mind and heart in relationship to the following descriptive words. So we'll begin with closing our eyes. and visualizing or in some way sensing an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, boundless proportions. And letting this fill your mind, fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness.
And now let the image, let the felt sense just simply dissolve. Let it go. the intricately interwoven tapestry of life with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self. This is the ground of understanding self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, I'm sure that many of you find that more and more often you act only from the heart of compassion because of the growing clarity of understanding that there is only relationship. There's only, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, there's only interbeing. There's no separate, no isolated, no independent you, no separated, no isolated, independent me. <clears throat> and from the 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva, he said, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope, for nothing in return. And now the second uh, guided meditation. So again, relaxing into your seat, closing your eyes. In the mind's eye, the eye of wisdom, which is centered in the heart, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. And relaxing and staying open and present with this. Now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, forming in this sky-like space. The clouds are moving and changing shape and dissolving and new clouds appearing and disappearing. 
in this visualization or felt sense, let the mind, let the heart rest in the openness of the sky, in the vast openness, not fixating on any cloud. Just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space. Now let the image and the felt sense just fade away. Let it go, let it dissolve. And just sit for a moment, letting the heart, the mind open wide. Allow awareness, mindful awareness, to be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. Who is where? Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing, and just sitting quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back and open up and face into the looking glass with willingness and with humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into.
we look in and we keep looking. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. And we see that everything, all things, are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there is no thing that satisfies, no thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in a sustaining way. We understand that we can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum continuum, or the world around us to render us fully and truly happy and at ease. And so we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror of ourself, going back and back into this looking glass of self. Mindful awareness becomes clearer and more open, more all-encompassing, and at the same time, more spacious. Instead of finding some solid, static, separate something, or some solid rendition of I, of me, some fixed eternal entity. We get back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. In this, there's no solid, separate I or other. In this essential emptiness, there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease. Even in the midst of the arising, changing, and ceasing, continual ceasing happenings of life within us and around us. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing, residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems. The greatest problems. The greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate. Being an isolated, solid, static, separate entity. This is the cause of our fundamental pain. Our fundamental suffering the core loneliness that human beings feel. I wanted to share a story with you, a true story. A friend of mine um, who was suffering with this core loneliness, he decided to uh, seek the help of a therapist for the first time in his life at the age of about 40. And with the advice um, from friends, he picked a therapist who had a Buddhist spiritual orientation. And when he called to make an appointment, he was told by the secretary that it would be helpful if he brought 
uh, some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern with him for this first therapy session. So when this man arrived at the therapist's office, he was toting a huge load of baggage uh, of all different sizes and shapes and colors. And he set them down in the the waiting room on the floor. And then he went back uh, to his uh, car and he got out another huge load and he piled them on top of the first load. He said that the uh, secretary was quite wide-eyed and looked a little concerned. He also told me that he had to go around collecting baggage from his friends and his family, he said, because he didn't have enough of his own. (laughs) So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he, of course, uh, took all of his baggage with him into the office for his first therapy appointment. And at some point during this first session, the therapist, in her wisdom, asked my friend to open up all of the baggage that he'd brought in with him. So he did that one by one. And he found that there was nothing inside any of these pieces of luggage, of baggage. A very wise therapist. It's certainly not every patient or every client that you could do this with. But this man was obviously ripe, obviously ready for such a pointing out. When we begin to taste the truth of not-self, when we touch into this simple reality, often at first there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of great relief, like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not really knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand the load and its nature and just simply set it down. There's an old uh, teaching story that I really like that I'd like to share with you. It's the story of a woman who had practiced for many, many years and it had some powerful and expansive and even uh, some quite illuminating experiences. But still, uh, she felt that she had not reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and feeling that there really wasn't very much time left. And she so wanted freedom in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one, who she had heard was able to turn the mind, able to turn the heart fully to the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her arduous uh, hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back uh, passed her on his way down the mountain. And as she passed, the woman stopped. As he passed, uh, the woman stopped and she called out to him. And he stopped and he turned towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one uh, who lived on the top of the mountain. And she explained to this man that she was on her way up to see this being because she wanted, really wanted to know the deepest truth. 
She really wanted uh, to know ultimate wisdom so that she could be fully awakened and totally free in this lifetime. And she explained that she wanted to, to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion and all of her anguish and all of her striving. And she told the old man that she'd heard that this wise person up on at the top of the mountain might be the one to reveal this to her. So the old man stood still and listened. And he briefly looked at her, raised his head and looked at her. Then taking his time, he slowly turned around and continued walking down the mountain for just a few steps. And then he stopped again and briefly stood still, and then again slowly turned around towards the woman. And then he very carefully and very slowly took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again, and walked on down the mountain toward the village. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. And we keep exploring. We keep living life, sensing, seeing, and understanding. And in fact, living life much more freshly and fully right here, right now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, of all things, and the relative aspect of understanding not-self is what connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness to self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. I'd like to close the talk uh, with two short pieces uh, from a collection called the Udana, the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. And this is from the Buddha. Seclusion is happiness for one content, who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. And the second 
teaching from the Udana, these inspired utterances from the Buddha, is this. And this is a teaching that the Buddha offered to his disciple Bahia. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia, there is for you in the scene only the scene, in the herd only the herd, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, you see that there is no thing here. You will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see there is no thing here, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.